37. Genesis chapter 37. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, that's uh, page 35 and the Pew Bibles provide it. It is um, also going to be up here on the screen, except this morning when I was putting it into the computer, I don't know if I couldn't read my own handwriting or I couldn't think or what, but I put Genesis 32, which we did about two months ago. So unless you're all ready for a review, uh, then we're going to look at Genesis 37 this morning. So the, I, I texted Sister Lisa, so hopefully she saw that the uh, text ought to be changed to chapter 37, and we'll get it all caught up. I am going to uh, step back here and turn this water off, partly because it's mostly full, and uh, mostly because I think our baptismal candidate this morning weighs about 40 pounds. So we don't need a, a whole terrible lot of water. If you look with me in Genesis 37, we are going to be picking up uh, uh, the story of Abraham's family, a story that we've looked at piece by piece. Uh, by the end of this series, you will have gone through the basically the entire book of Genesis. You know, we've skipped some parts, uh, but the basic storyline of Genesis is something we've been looking at on and off for quite a while now. Uh, we are picking up now you remember that the biblical stories are told like the, the generations of Terah describe Terah's son Abraham's life. The, the, sorry, the, biblical, the generation of Abraham describes Isaac's life. The generations of uh, Isaac described Jacob's life. The generations of Jacob describes the life of Jacob's children. So whenever it talks about, whenever it introduces the story of someone in the Bible, it tells the story of their children. Now, you remember that it all began uh, in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 2 is called the generations of the heaven and the earth because it's the things that came from the heaven and the earth, specifically one man, Adam. Then the generations of Adam go on and we come up through this problem of sin, right? The world is fractured. The entire world is broken because of Adam's sin. Because of Adam's sin, the world is a very different place than it was before. And, uh, the thorns infest the ground, you understand? People uh, kill one another, the brokenness in our own hearts. The entire world becomes crooked. So then, God says, I'm going to fix it. You say, okay, well, God, uh, what are you going to do? And first, he fixes it with a flood. He says, I'm just, going to, I'm just going to clean the whole thing up. But, of course, that did not solve the wickedness in the human heart. And so even though eight people were left, the eight most righteous family in the world at that time, it was a very, very short period of time before the sin was all back. And so God, knowing this in advance, already had a master plan for something else. And so he started the same way that you would start. You know, when you see a really big problem, there are two kinds of people when you see a big problem. Uh, I think we all are both kinds of people at some times, but if you walk into a room and the room is just a complete disaster, you know, the, the puppy got out, somebody left the water on, and everything just went completely haywire. There are some people that stand there and look and say, oh, I don't know. I don't even know how to start on this. I don't even know what to do. Just stare and look at it. And there are some people that start picking up where they are. 
The, um, you know, you look at, I'm sure that by this point everybody has seen uh, yet another picture of this, uh, the little Syrian boy, you know, who was in the ambulance covered in dust and everything, uh, just frozen. They said he was about four or five years old and uh, just caught in the middle of this war zone. It was just a few months ago that there was the picture of the uh, Syrian refugee who had died washed up on the beach that made the rounds. Um, of course, we've got very short memories about things like that, don't we? You know, we th- things that affect us personally <clears throat> hold our minds much more fully than things that are separated from us. And so uh, you and I, as human beings, care more about our toothache than about children dying on the other side of the world. Uh, because that toothache, you can't get it off your mind. But when we look at a problem like that and you say, wow, I don't know. You know, what, what do you even do to stop this thing where hundreds of thousands of children are starving to death and dying and you've got these little kids being caught in the middle of a war zone? What do you do? You know, how do I even get started? And of course, there are two kinds of people. There are the kinds of people that sit and stare at the whole thing and say, well, I just don't know where to start. And there are the kinds of people that start right here. Pick the little boy up off the ground, put him in the ambulance, take him, clean him off. And I hope you are the kind of person that when you look at the brokenness in the world, you say, I'm not going to be overwhelmed by how bad things are. I'm going to start right here. Another illustration that I'm sure you've all heard is the, the story of a little boy who walks out on a beach that's covered in starfish. And he walks out there and he just he sees starfish everywhere. He picks one up and he throws it in the water. He picks one up and he throws it in the water. And an older man comes up to him and says, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm putting them back in the water or they're going to die. And he says, there's so many. You're never going to get them all. It's not making a difference at all. He reached down, he picked up a starfish, threw it in the water and said, it made a difference to that one. <laughs> How often do we do nothing at all because we can't do it all? So God looks at the world, and he says, I am going to save the entire world, but I'm going to start with one family. I'm going to start with one man. And so he calls Abram and says, Abram, through you and your family, I promise all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to give you this specific land. I'm going to give you these specific descendants. And through your great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, the entire world is going to be rescued. So God says, it's a big mess but I'm going to start right here. So God called Abraham, and uh, Abraham went through his ups and downs and different things, but was a, fundamentally a man of faith. Finally, Abraham had a son in his old age, Isaac. Isaac was a, uh, a, a, the, the son of the promise. And so he, he was the one through whom all the blessings that God gave to Abraham passed. Isaac then had two sons. You remember Jacob and Esau. And you remember if there's one thing you know about Jacob, it's that he is a rascal. You would not want Jacob to be friends with your kids. Uh, You wouldn't want to have Jacob as one of your kids. Jacob was a troublemaker from the beginning to the end. Uh, Maybe particularly important for us is to remember when he stole his brother's birthright. Remember his, uh, his mom liked him. His dad liked his brother. And so he decided he was going to steal his brother's birthright. So he covered himself. You remember his brother was a hairy man, and so he put goat skin on his hands. And he killed a goat, and his mom cooked it to taste like venison that his brother was bringing back. And he he put on his brother's clothes, disguised himself as his brother, and then received his brother's blessing. 
Of course, then he's on the run for his life. You remember this? He was on the run for his life, and he went out and uh, left and got married. He fell in love and got married. But not exactly in that order. He fell in love, and then his uh, father-in-law tricked him into marrying the woman that he loved, sister. You remember, he married Leah. He, uh, he worked seven years, and it said it seemed just a few days because of the love that he had for Rachel. And then he had his big wedding, and it says, and behold, in the morning it was Leah. He, works a, he marries Rachel after a week of his honeymoon with Leah, then works another seven years to pay Rachel off. And he, the entire time it says over and over again as they have these different children, God saw that Leah was hated. Now, we didn't explore this very much before, but it's about to hit us head on. When you have a man, you know, God's plan is for uh, one man, one woman, till death do them part, right? What God's put together, let not man put asunder. When you have a man married to two different women, especially at the same time, what kind of an influence do you think that's going to have on their children? You think they're all going to get along? You know, it's, it's going to be a fundamental disaster. How many people do you know that play favorites with their kids? And how does that, how does that come to roost? How does that, how does that take place? Where does, how does that work out? And so here you have in this extreme thing, Jacob at this time is not a godly man. He's a selfish, self-centered man. Until finally God grabs a hold of him, knocks his hip out of joint, and changes his name to Israel. So Jacob has a turnaround. Jacob gives his life to God. But sin still comes home to roost. One thing that I think we often think is that if we come to Jesus and we apologize, that all the consequences of our sin will just disappear. And if there's one thing we are going to learn today, it is that every wild oat that Jacob sowed, it comes a harvest. So we sin, we never completely get away from that sin. It's always there, it's always lurking. God forgives us and says, eternally there is no penalty for it. But we have sown that sin in the world, and as long as we live in the world, it's still here with us. And Jacob is about to get a big old taste of that. So, Genesis chapter 37. We start a new series, Meant for Good, and the title of the message this morning is Riches to Rags, Life of Joseph. Verse, verse 1, and Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. Now you look at that and you say, okay, look at that, it's happily ever after. Jacob dwells in the land of Canaan, he's in the place where God intended for him to be, he's receiving the promises, there's a lot of kids now, all done. But sin still comes home to roost. What you think is the happy ending is not always the happy ending. Verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the land was with the sons of Bilhah, and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Here's what's happening. Joseph is out watching his uh, brothers. Now, Joseph has got 11 brothers. There's 12 of them all told. One is younger than him. That's Benjamin. Benjamin died in, uh, Rachel died in Benjamin's childbirth. Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, had two children. Uh, Benjamin was apparently much younger and not old enough to be working in the fields. Uh, uh, Joseph, 17, is out watching his older brothers uh, 
one of whom it's worth mentioning is probably about 30, and he comes back to tell his dad how they've been acting. Now, what kind of a parent-child relationship has the 17-year-old in charge? I know some 17-year-olds, and there's very little that I would put them in charge of. He says in verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. Ah, why is he in charge? He's in charge because his father loves him best. He plays this favoritism, and so he makes his favorite son this expensive coat. You say, well, Benjamin was a son of his old age, too. Well, apparently, since his favorite wife died in the childbirth of Benjamin, he always held that there. And as long as Joseph was around, Joseph was the one. Joseph was the child. And everybody else was chopped liver. Now, one thing I'm going to tell you is immediately, that makes Joseph a brat. It gets a little worse because it did not start there. Because you remember, where did Jacob, Israel, Jacob and Israel are the same person. Where did Jacob learn to play favorites from? Well, he learned to play favorites from his mother. You see, these kind of generational things, things that had happened a hundred years earlier, are having consequences here in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. You create these family habits. You create these dynamics. You raise your kids to act a certain way. They treat their kids a certain way, and the consequences of sin just keep coming and coming and coming and coming. Sin is pervasive. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So Joseph here, and I guess I should mention uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the names of our four protagonists are in alphabetical order, so you can remember it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Even when you remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel, it still works. Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Joseph. So if you get confused, just go through it in alphabetical order and you can remember who's who. Now, Joseph here is he's spoiled and he is just, he's going, he rats out his brothers. He's, this is apparently just his, the way that he lives. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. They hate him so much they can't even talk to him. How many of you have ever encountered a family like that? People, there's jealousy, there's greed, there's whatever, and they can't even talk nicely to each other. They can't even get along. You know, where, where you the Bible um, is timeless, but it's also as relevant as the morning newspaper. Isn't it? You know people like this. You know families that are divided because people played favorites, because parents put their own faults into their children. You know siblings that can't talk to each other because of deep-held grudges. And what do you do? Well, so they hate him. And then Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren. And they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you the dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaf stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. So he says, I had this dream, and we were all uh, harvesting. And we all had our own little sheaf, and mine stood up taller than the rest of them, and yours all bowed down to mine. The interpretation of that dream is pretty straightforward. His his brothers say, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? 
or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. They just hate him more and more all the time. So I had this dream where God showed me that the older ones will serve the younger. That shouldn't have been that strange to them because that was their father's story. That was their grandfather's story. And so I see two different character things going on here. On one hand, his brothers have no right to be angry at the sovereign working of God. On the other hand, if Joseph had a little more sense with the real world, he wouldn't call all his brothers together and say, hey, let me tell you what I dreamed about. So Joseph is, you know, you see the character flaws of both of them. Joseph, the spoiled brat, expects to always be the center of everything, and his brothers are hard-headed and rebellious. This is one messed-up family. You know, uh, I've heard it said that, you know, people say we need to uh, return to biblical families, and I just think they should be more specific. I think it should be the pattern the Bible describes about what a family should be like is fantastic. But if you want to actually model your life off the marriages and the families we see in the Bible, that's not such a great idea. And so they all come, they all bow down, and they hate him, and they hate him, and they hate him. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed the dream more. Joseph, very in touch, says, I can see you like that one. Let me tell you about my next dream. And he, told, and he said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? You see, he says, I had this dream, and the sun and the moon and eleven stars all bowed down. Of course, the sun is Jacob, the moon is Leah, and his 11 brothers are the 11 stars. <laughs> See that my parents are going to come down and bow down to me. This is one reason we know Benjamin was born already. Some people get in fits and say, well, you know, it, maybe it's out of chronological order and everything. Uh, but at this point, Leah is already his mother. Uh, Rachel will be long dead by the time they come to Egypt. And so um, if he's having this dream now about Leah, it's because Rachel is already dead and Leah's been raising him. Now, this is uh, a very important scripture. Uh, when you read in the book of Revelation, it talks about a woman clothed with the sun and the moon and 12 stars. And uh, different commentators say, well, this refers to the church. This refers to Jesus. This refers to the Virgin Mary, is what the Catholic Church says. Uh, but who is the sun and the moon and the 12 stars? Well, it's Israel. It's the nation of Israel. So the woman is the nation of Israel. So that's, just store that in your, the back of your mind. Keep that in your pocket. Now, it came to pass... When Joseph was coming to his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped way ahead. I didn't, we're not ready for that yet. Sorry, spoiler. I didn't, I didn't mean to spoil the ending for you, but they take his coat of many colors away. He said, his brothers envied him, but his father observed the saying. And his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said unto Joseph, do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem. Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he, said, and he said to him, Go, I pray thee, and see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So Joseph is home. 
His older brothers are all out working, and Joseph is at home. Now, um, you know, Jacob himself, we know Jacob was soft. Esau was a a rough and tumble man. Joseph, his favorite son, takes after his dad. He says, the rest of them are going to go work. I'm going to go out and be the supervisor. Um, You all should have been here when we were replacing the sewer line. Maybe some of you saw the picture that I took. We had 11 people standing around and two people with shovels. You know, everybody loves to be a supervisor. The uh, jo- Joseph says, I'm going to stay at home. You know, he's laying at home watching TV. Well, I don't know what he's doing. He's laying at home. And then his dad says, hey, you need to go check on your brothers and tell me how they're doing. Go out and supervise them. Now, if you realize that your kids don't like each other, I'm going to give you just a, a master tip here. Don't send one of them to go and evaluate the other one's performance, right? <laughs> they're already... There's already fighting and infighting between them. This is not the way to handle it. So he goes. Joseph, of course, is more than eager to do it. And in uh, verse 14, and he said to him, go, I pray thee, and see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So you understand he's not going permanently to work with them. He's going to report. Tattletale in chief. So he sent him out into the vale of Hebron, the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. All you need to know here is, for right this second, is that they were not where they were expected to be. That he runs into someone who says, no, they went over here, and he follows them further away from home where he thought they were going to be. That's actually, I think, going to be one of the most important parts of the account. But we'll, we'll get to it. And when they saw him afar off, the brothers see him coming. You know, maybe that reminds you of some other places in the Bible, you know, where the, the father of the prodigal son sees him coming from afar off and runs to him. Except their reaction is not quite the same. They see him afar off. And even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. The brothers say, what we're going to do is we're going to kill him. Boy, we are awfully far from home, aren't we? Nobody will ever know. We're sick and tired of the way that he's acting. And he's not going to do it anymore. This is the holy family. These 10 people, these 10 people are the people God is going to use to save the world. And here they are. In fact, I'll tell you, uh, it seems as we read the rest of the chapter that Judah, Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather is kind of the ringleader in the whole thing. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And so we see right here in the midst of all this sin, in the midst of all of this division, that it just gets worse and worse and worse. Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. Once they've made up their mind to hate, it is one short step to murder, and that's just being able to get away with it. And they said to one another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams." Hey, look, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him and see how his dreams come true. 
And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands. So Reuben is the, the one innocent party. Reuben said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands, to deliver him to his father again. Reuben says, well, let's not kill him. Uh, we don't want to be guilty of murder. Let's just leave him in the pit to die. Reuben doesn't mean it. Reuben's intention is to go back, sneak in, and rescue his brother later. And it came to pass, when Joseph was coming to his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him. They come and they, they rip his coat off of him. You say, why is that here? That was the thing that just made them so angry. Every time they saw that coat, they just saw Dad's favorite written all over it. It just made them angrier and angrier and angrier. You know, it was a symbol of everything that upset them. You say, it's just a little bit ridiculous. Well, it's a whole lot ridiculous. But that's how we operate, isn't it? You know, when somebody uh, gets angry, they take their wedding ring off and throw it. It's a symbol of everything I'm so angry about. They take Joseph's coat and rip it off and throw him into a pit. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat bread. See see how cold-blooded they are? They throw him into the pit, and they say, all right, time for lunch. They sit down and eat and wait. And they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels, bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. He sees that they see this trade caravan going on the way to Egypt. And Judah, this is the great, 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 great grandfather of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judah said unto his brethren, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. He said, I would sure hate to kill my brother. Besides, we're not going to make any money that way. Let's sell him into slavery. This is the lineage of Jesus. So if anybody ever thinks that they are uh, too far gone to be used by God, you have not sold your brother into slavery after just barely being talked out of killing him, to the best of my knowledge. If you have, see me after the service. (laughs) He is so hard-hearted. All he wants to do is get rid of his brother, and all he wants to do is make a quick buck. And his, brother, his brethren were content. They say, you know what? That sounds like a great idea. Then there passed by Midianites merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. There are 10 of them, 20 pieces of silver. For two pieces of silver each, they sell their brother away. I can't give you a modern-day value because we don't know what the size of the pieces of silver were. But we know at least by the New Testament that a, uh, a slave was worth 30 pieces of silver. So it appears that they got a bargain bin discount. How little are we willing to sell people out for? How lightly do we treat human beings? 
the uh, thinking again about that little boy with the Syrian crisis. The uh, there was a an editorial in the New York Times where a, a lady talked about how she had posted about the death of her dog and uh, had posted about the Syrian crisis with this little boy and how she had gotten more sympathy uh, for the death of her dog than for this kindergartner sitting overwhelmed. How cheaply do we treat human beings made in the image of God? And of course, you all don't need me to tell you that um, for some segments of the American population, the death rate is higher in the womb than out of the womb. There are more African-American baby boys aborted than born. How cheap is human life? How cheap? And so, where does that come from? That comes from the same spirit that was here in Joseph's brothers. A spirit of envy, a spirit of anger, a spirit of greed. Those same attitudes, you know, if you think that you are beyond having those kind of attitudes, then you just don't know your own heart very well. So they are torn up by it. Lays in the pit, they pull him out, and they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And Reuben returned into the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. Reuben is left, sort of snuck away so he can sneak back and rescue Joseph, and when he gets there, Joseph is gone. He tears his clothes in grief. And he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? He says, He's gone, and what am I supposed to do? And they tell him what happened. And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. They send this uh, rare, expensive coat of many colors kill a goat, put the blood on it, send it to their father and say, do you recognize this? This looks kind of like Joseph's does. And of course, there was not another one like it and he knew it instantly. And said, it is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down into the grave unto my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Very quickly, make a few observations for you. One, Joseph's sin, the, the, Jacob's sin, comes home to roost in an extreme way. Uh, I say in an extreme way because in every possible way, what he has done is the direct consequence. What he faces is the direct consequence of what he's done. He played favoritism between his two wives, and now his brothers are divided along those same lines. He uh, played favoritism with his sons, and the special gift that he gave to one of his sons was used to break his heart. Moreover, and the thing that is most interesting to me, is he deceived his brother Esau, or he deceived his father of his brother Esau, by killing a goat. And then his sons deceive him by killing a goat. You can be sure your sin will find you out. You may escape it for a long time, but here it comes. 
Jacob here is reaping what he has sowed. So I want you to see on one hand, this evil scheming of his brother, the consequences of Joseph's sin. But I want you to see on the other hand, the hand of God in the entire thing. You know, if his brothers had still been at Hebron, where they were expected to be, then they would not have seen the caravan come by. Why were they not where they were supposed to be? Why was there a man there who happened to run into Joseph and happened to send him on? Because God was sending Joseph to that pit. God was sending Joseph to that slave caravan because God had a bigger plan going on. See, what what a marvelous thing. You see the hand of God. You read this story, and the first time you read it, and the second time you read it, and the third time you read it, if you're like me, you look at it, and you're like, why is this here? You know, why why does the Bible... It's not that Genesis wastes a bunch of words telling you about every little detail that happened. Why is the fact he made a pit stop in Hebron on the way? Why is it here? And it's because Moses wants you to know that it was no accident. That he ran into the right person at the right time to be in the right place to accomplish God's purposes. So you wonder, why do people suffer? There's many different answers to that. We will look at lots of them as we go through the life of Joseph, which is a life of Extreme suffering. But one of the reasons that people suffer is because God is putting them where they need to be to accomplish his purposes. We can't see the whole thing. We can't see the entire picture. But God is the master painter. And so Joseph here is pushed out and pushed out and pushed out. One other quick observation I want to make uh, before we sort of begin to apply this briefly. Is that Joseph was given these two dreams by God. After God made these promises to Joseph, it seemed like they were going in the wrong direction. And oftentimes people have a very strange idea of the will of God. They say that if you are opposed in something, then obviously God didn't want that to happen. But there's no Bible for that. Joseph was opposed by God all the way in the center of God's will. I mean opposed by God in the sense that God sent circumstances to him that seemed to hinder him. He was going where God wanted him to go. He was in line with God's plan. But as far as Joseph could tell, God was working out every circumstance to stop him. So sometimes we have this attitude, well, you know, I am. I'm going to go and I'm going to buy this new car and I'm going to apply for financing. And if I get financing, God wants me to have it. I see this new Corvette. I I get it. Well, God, everything's worked out perfectly. God just opened the door. But that's not how that works. On the opposite side, well, I decided that I really wanted to go on this mission trip. But I, I went in and I applied for time off. And my boss said, no, I'm sorry, you can't go. God must not have wanted me to go on this mission trip. That is not how we discern the will of God. (laughs) Joseph is proof of that because every step of the way, Joseph was driven into deeper and deeper opposition. The closer he followed God, the harder things got. But God knew where it was all going. 
How often in your life have you decided something was the will of God or not based on how easy it was, based on how things were falling into place? You know, sometimes that's true. You know, sometimes you look at that and you say, wow, God made this fall into place. But that alone is not enough to know the will of God. Never. You know, if, if God wants it to happen, then God will put the pieces together but well, that does not mean he will put the pieces together in the way that we expect. And so you see all these things happening. And Joseph is on, God is making everything fall into place for his brothers to bow down to him. But it sure would not have seemed that way if they'd been sitting around talking about it. So you don't know. You say, look, God's opening the door. If God wants it to happen, he'll make it easy. Joseph says no. You say, I'm going through all these different things. I wonder how I am out of the will of God. I wonder what I'm being punished for. God says, no. So, all this marvelous thing goes to show the way that God's plan works. So, God, sometimes you seem delayed. You know, sometimes you see God, you see, it seems like God is late. But as we just looked at a few weeks ago, and it's, it's so neat, you know, crisscrossing through the Bible and seeing how the themes of the New Testament and the Old Testament connect. I really enjoy it a lot. Just two weeks ago, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, we were looking at the life of Lazarus. And it seemed like God was way too late. Jesus was so late. Martha said, or Mary said, Lord, if you'd been here, you could have healed him. It's four days late, but he was still on time. Joseph, it seems like God is so late. Like, God, if you're going to make this happen, if I'm really going to be bowed down to my brothers, you're going to have to do something right now. Can you imagine what Joseph was praying in the bottom of that pit? God, you're going to have to do something right now so that the promises you made can come true. And then he sold into slave caravan. And he says, oh my goodness. What's happened? He say, God... I thought you were going to be there for me. I thought you were going to answer my prayer. God was just answering in a way that Joseph was not ready to understand. But now I want you to see Joseph's suffering as we look at, from one more angle, this attitude of why do people suffer. Joseph's suffering was just a pointer to something else. There is a man who was destined that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. It's a man who was sent by his father to his brothers, betrayed by his brothers with murderous intent. He was actually killed and thrown into a pit. They stripped his clothes off of him. Blood was spilled on his clothes, but not that of a substitute, his own. And this one, just like Joseph, went from riches to rags. But just like Joseph's suffering only made sense in the context of the master plan, the suffering of Jesus took him from riches to rags to riches again. Joseph is such a powerful picture of Jesus. He was betrayed by the people. You know, he went into his own and his own received him not. It, Joseph's suffering is brought into perspective when we realize that 
it is redeemed in Jesus. That ultimately, because it brought Jesus into the world, it was a small price to pay for the great spiritual blessings that came. If Joseph hadn't been taken into Egypt, to go ahead and jump ahead quite a bit, if Joseph hadn't taken into Egypt, all of Israel's children would have starved to death in Canaan. And Jesus never would have been born. What I'm saying to you is that 2,000 years later, the blessings of Joseph's life, the rewards for Joseph's suffering, finally came into the world. You know, we, aren't we so short-sighted? We say, well, you know, I've really got to get something taken care of in the next two weeks. God, God, where are you? Say, God, I've been in this situation for six months. Where have you been? Where is the answer to my prayers? And Joseph says, the answer to my prayers didn't come for 2,000 years. He said, my great, 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 great grandchildren were dead by the time all the pieces fell into place. We are so impatient, aren't we? You go and you put something in the microwave, or you look at the back of it, and you say, five minutes, then i got to stir it, and then two more minutes? I'm hungry now. <laughs> We're so impatient. We want it, we want it now, we want it how we want it. You know, you, uh, you go into a restaurant, you order something. You know, I'd like a bacon cheeseburger, extra fries. And, you know, ten minutes later, you're like, where are they? You know what? Can you imagine trying to go and... We go back in time and uh, go to like 1920s and tell them about some of the things we complain about today. But we're so impatient. We need it now. We need it now. We need it now. And that is nowhere more destructive than in our spiritual lives, where we expect if God's going to work it out, he better do it right away. Say, God, I've been waiting on you for a year. You didn't do it. I'm going to take it in my own hands. And how many things have we wrecked? By losing patience in God. What if we could be like Joseph? (laughs) What if we could be like Jesus? Who said, I may go from riches to rags, but I trust that ultimately at the last day, God works all things together for good. So I I mean, this is such a familiar story. That's one of the difficulties of doing uh, well-known biblical stories is you know what happened. You know he's got this coat of many colors. He upsets his brothers. They take it away. They kill him. They sell him into slavery. You know, somehow it works out, and he becomes like the vice president of Egypt. You know, that's in your mind somewhere. But when you look at it and you say, I see Jesus bouncing off these pages. I see the one betrayed by his brothers. I see the one cast into the pit. And I see the one that God would not leave in the pit but called up again to put him on a throne. That's when the Bible comes to life, when you say, where's Jesus here? Where's Jesus here? So I don't know your situation. I don't know if you feel like God has been working against you, like God has done this or that or the other. I don't know if you feel like you've been sold into Egypt. No. I don't feel like if you feel like things have worked out so perfectly that things could not have gone more wrong. But I can say that Jesus patiently endured suffering. He became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. I'm telling you that this morning, that Jesus came and he died, he gave up his very life, so that if you would place your trust in him and say, Lord, I don't know where we're going, but you're where I want to go. 
If you have that attitude and you trust him and say, Lord, I commit myself to you. I believe you died for me. I give you my life. And he'll save you and change your life. And then wherever he leads you, it'll be for your good. It'll be to make you like his son. You know, maybe, uh, maybe you've probably heard the story about the uh, man who uh, is talking to one of his friends and says, you know, I've been given this bad diagnosis. I'm not going to make it. And I'm just so scared. I don't know what uh, it's going to be like. I don't know what death is going to be like. And his friend said, you know, here, uh, I want you to come over to my house tonight. Here's my address. I want you to bring your dog with you. And I'm going to show you something. Okay? So he comes to his friend's house for dinner. He knocks on the door, you know, puts his GPS and everything, and he comes in, brings the dog with him. He says, okay. A friend opens up the door and says, okay, I want you to shut the door, and I want you to leave your dog right here in the foyer. I want you to shut the door, and you go on the other side. Okay? His friend's lost his mind. What's, what's about to happen? Am I about to be killed? What's going on? He walks through this door. Shuts the door behind him. His friend says, I want you to watch something. He opens up the door. The dog's been running in. And he says, now your dog has never been in this room before. So why did your dog want to be in here so badly? Because he knew that his master was here. Please, I will follow. We stand and our musicians come forward. We're going to have a brief hymn of invitation. If you would